Welcome to Ethicality, a podcast about ethics, compassion, trust, accountability, and their critical but often overlooked impact on business and humanity. We're your hosts. I'm Dan Gorman. And I'm Nadia Khalili. Um, today, we're pleased to have Professor Ayman Omar joining us. He is the Associate Dean of Graduate Programs at American University. He was our favorite professor at COGOD. Um, professor Omar, would you... Uh, mind introducing yourself and telling us a little about your background. Thank you, Nadia, and thank you, Dan, and thanks a lot for the kind introduction. Uh, my name is Aman Omar. I've been here at American University now for almost 13 years, coming up to the 14th year. Uh, my background, I've worked in the oil industry as an engineer and then transitioned to the area of supply chain management. Uh, been in this domain now since 2004. I've been uh, teaching, doing research, and working in consulting in this space. And currently, I serve as the uh, Associate Dean of our graduate program. So I oversee both the residential and the online programs at the Google School Business. Awesome, awesome. Um, so to start off, uh, have some more broader questions, and then we can kind of dive into more of the ethical supply chain and different strategies and tactics there. But from a high level, I guess I'm, one of the things I'm always curious about is company mission statements and vision statements and, you know, how sometimes, you know, in reality, it, you know, the company might, might not always be walking the walk, uh, even if they have the greatest mission statement of all time. Uh, and even if it incorporates things like social responsibility and, and these types of themes. So I guess from your perspective, you know, why, why do you think mission statements for companies sometimes are lacking in this regard when it comes to social responsibility and, and uh, kind of ethical business practices. And then part two of that is whose responsibility do you think that is to, you know, maybe kind of, uh, you know, transition some of these statements and uh, companies into actually kind of moving forward more ethically? Thanks, Dan. So let me start with the first part of the, the mission statements. You'll see uh, there's a Two, two parts to the mission statement uh, aspect. One is whether it actually includes the language or not. And, and in a lot of cases, it may not include very specific language to ethical behavior, sustainable behavior, socially responsible behavior. But even if it does, where you're gonna get a disconnect is between the mission statement and actual operations on the ground and the execution, the, the implementation part of that mission statement. I think the, the to, even to take this a step back is if you talk to people about being ethical in their behavior, I don't think anybody's gonna disagree of wanting to be ethical. I think the question is, what is the definition? What is the range of ethical versus unethical behavior? Where do you draw that line of saying this is unethical? But back to the mission and vision statements, the, the biggest challenge there is, again, the, the thinking of those kinds of things of the strategy to expand the company to sell different products or services to reach X number of markets uh, and thinking about ethical behavior or sustainable, socially sustainable behavior in a way that it's a binary option, right? Should we be profitable or should we be ethical? Should we be profitable or should we be sustainable? I think framing it in this way has been always the challenge. It's um, has forced this conversation when we're thinking of those kinds of things in a, in a binary, in a choice, in a, in a uh, artificial way that 
it's really not a choice. They go hand in hand. It's understanding how they complement each other, how they're both an integral part of each other. Uh, so that's that's where the challenge is. The the other part of the execution is the the metrics, right? How do we how do you reward different people in the organization? That's to your point of whose responsibility is it? It's everybody's responsibility. And I'll give you some examples. When you talk about ethical behavior for any company, well, that's part of this aspect is related to understanding consumers and how you address their, their needs. Part of it is production and manufacturing. Part of it is actual just distribution, logistics, uh, returns management. How do you ethically and, and responsibly take back products at the end of the life cycle? In some countries, that's a law, that's a regulation, but that's not the case everywhere. So where do you draw that line and how do you structure this? So that's not just, but part of it, this is, again, falls within the, the areas of multiple units within the organization. And I'll even take that, that that extends beyond just one organization. Because you can do as much as you want, but unless your supply chain is part of this equation, what you're doing is not that effective. So it's not one individual. It has to be some part of, and I'll use the word DNA loosely, it has to be part of your DNA as an organization. As a supply chain, this is how we function. This is how we operate. And this is how we do things. We don't ask about, you know, when, you, uh, when you're trying to achieve a certain objective within a unit, we don't say whose individual responsibility is this. It's all of the unit together. Likewise, with ethical behavior practices, with socially responsible behavior, it's everybody who's part of this organization. Because again, we should not micro-optimize, right? We should not focus on this in one area where everything else is just offsetting all of our efforts in that domain. So I'll, I'll stop here, but uh, generally speaking, I think the disconnect between execution, between the mission statement and execution. Second part is not understanding how do you involve, how do you make sure this is integrated within and across organizations in a way that people will do what they're being rewarded on doing, right? If I tell you that you need to do the following things this year to get a bonus, everything else beyond those objectives are great, but you're gonna be focusing 100% on those objectives. That's what your bonus is based on. So let's rethink how we view those kinds of things. Uh, a lot of people now are looking at ESG investments, right? That's not now part of, it's just good to have. It's, it's a financially driven initiative here. And that's why I say, we should not think of those things as a choice, as a binary. That's a false choice that we're making. They, it's, they both are integral to the success and the, I'll use the word sustainability of the organization because just because an organization has existed for X number of years, that doesn't mean that they're gonna be around for the next 10 years. So even in, in your own self-preservation and own interest, that has to be part of the conversation. Thank you so much. I love the concept that you're talking about that you know these business outcomes are not mutually exclusive. We do traditionally think about a business's primary objective and its sole objective as being financial gain. Um, but I do think there's an opportunity to still integrate a code of ethics here. And I think in the past, we've seen these as conflicting goals. Um, but there's a lot of literature that supports the idea, for example, that ethical supply chains are actually more resilient. 
And I think if anything, that's been evidenced by the coronavirus. I mean, I think this pandemic has shown um, businesses amazing capacity to deliver, quite frankly, at an astounding level, but at the same time, it's exposed a lot of its shortcomings, for example, not having this code of ethics in place or not having embedded throughout your operations. Um, we could probably have a whole class just on the impact of the pandemic alone um, or a whole other podcast, but ultimately this was a, an unforeseeable disruptor. And I know that uh, something you have a lot of experience with is risk mitigation. So I'm curious about um, what your take was on the businesses that were better prepared to handle COVID-19. Um, if there's a company that's done a particularly good job, how can other businesses emulate that? And how would we account for risks moving forward? Um, now that you've experienced the importance or businesses have seen the importance of being nimble, how can they incorporate that sort of flexibility into their strategy? So with the thinking of COVID as just a major event, right? It's one event. We're still going through that event, but it's a major event. It's a major disruptor. disruptor. But that's something that's has happened in the past at a smaller scale, at a smaller scope, in terms of disruption, in terms of massive events happening, and will continue to happen as we move forward. And the question becomes is how do you, how do you build resiliency in place? Uh, you've seen probably a taste of this when we were doing in class the online simulation or the simulation for the bow-up effect of just if you know a very tiny disruption in demand patterns causes just a complete chaos throughout the supply chain. And that chaos just keeps getting amplified. And in, in, in a simulation design, that was a very simplistic look at things, but it gets exacerbated even much more. The main reason is there is no transparency. There is no visibility. We do not know what's happening. That's part of it. And that's a big part of ethical behavior is how do we even measure ethical behavior? How do we measure practices if we do not know what's happening uh, beyond, again, assuming we know what's happening within our four walls, we don't know what's happening beyond our four walls. We maybe we know something about first supplier, second supplier, but beyond that, we have no clue. How do you mitigate those kinds of risks is, again, added visibility, added transparency that allows you to react in a quicker fashion. That allows you to react as soon as the disruption happens in place. Example of a disruption is a recall, right? Food recall. Suddenly there is a massive uh, alert and a recall for a food item, but we're not sure which source. We don't know where they are. We can track and trace, but it's going to take us a little bit. It's going to take us a few weeks. We cannot afford to wait a few weeks. So what do we do? We just take everything that we have on shelf and we just destroy that because we cannot afford to wait a few weeks until we figure out what's happening. That's lack of visibility. Think of this as you're driving a car or you're flying a plane with zero visibility. It's extremely dark, right? You can't see anything and it becomes very, very challenging. It's hard to react when something happens versus you see something coming way ahead of time. You have time to react. You have time to address this. Or the other part of this is even if it happens in a very short time frame. Do you have the capability of adjusting quickly and being you know, responsive, being flexible in your operations, in your production, in your distribution, or not? 
uh, again, the reason I say that this is not new, again, this is different in scope and scale and it's affecting the entire world right now. So there's no question about the intensity of this event, but we can go back to you know, the late nineties when we had the mad cow disease in Europe, which is affecting everything from the, the uh, cattle and livestock products, uh, dairy products, but also the byproducts with everything that dairy goes in. Example would be the candy industry and the chocolate industry in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, suddenly now your supply coming from the UK had to be diverted. Companies like example was, uh, that, whether this was Nestle or Mars, I think it was Nestle was able to switch very quickly within a very short time frame and were able to capture a significant market share just because of that. So your ability to adjust quickly because of something that's happening, your transparency and visibility, that allows you not just to maintain the, the integrity and quality of your products, but also allows you to get uh, a better market share. And that's where those two things are not mutually exclusive. They go hand in hand. It takes time to build. And that's another thing is you cannot, there shouldn't, shouldn't be any false expectations that that's something you can do overnight. That's a long-term strategy. That's something that you start. There's a baseline. And again, it's not a binary of one or zero. It's not whether you have transparency or no transparency. It's not whether you've got visibility or no visibility. It's not whether you're ethical or unethical. There's a wide range. It's a long continuum. And it's okay to start somewhere and just have a very long-term strategy and plan of how do you keep moving to the next step? What else do you need to be doing? Are you perfect? No, but you're taking baby steps towards that next phase. And it's a continuous process of improvement. Gotcha, that makes a lot of sense. So in, in, if you were consulting a company that uh, you know, either was looking already or that you thought could benefit from you know, increased transparency and trust around uh, whether it's their supply chain or just business practices in general, if you were consulting a company, uh, you, you just mentioned like, you know, there'd probably be different stages in the process. It's not an overnight fix. Uh, wh where would you suggest a company starts or wh where would might you start if you were looking at it from a consulting lens? I think starting first with trying to look at both the, starting with the, if you were to take a supply chain uh, perspective in this, looking at the amount of waste they've currently have in the system. That's the easiest place to start is just the waste, right? Because waste reduction, leads to lower operational costs, but at the same time, you're reducing waste for in the environment, you're re reducing tr less transportation rides to move that waste back and forth. Uh, you're reducing complexity in your system to get rid of that waste. So it's helping you on many fronts. So the first thing could be waste. Looking at areas to reduce that waste. And again, I'm trying to think of so many different types of supply chains now, and they're so they're very different in nature. But I think one is that waste in the system and it goes back and I'll give you an example why waste is important because we over, we typically overlook returns. And I'll tell you why returns are extremely important. Returns is a significant amount of operations. I think in 2020 this was return return products were probably 10% of the total amount of sales across all retail activities. 10% of activity, that's a significant amount of products and cash tied into those products. 
thinking of how to reduce that by even a tiny margin gives you a massive improvement on every single financial metric you've got in place. And that's not a hard sell for companies, right? So, so it hits, it checks all of those boxes. Let's think of returns and figuring out was the problem because customers did not pick the products correctly or were there defective products? If it's defective products, maybe we need to invest slightly. And that's where you start thinking of the options and solutions. Maybe we need to start investing slightly, putting again, minimal investments in training and developing the employees and the staff of our suppliers. It may sound crazy, it's very counterintuitive to go and take your own money and invest in somebody else's suppliers, but that investment in itself reduces the waste in the system, that reduces the amount of return products, that reduces the inefficiencies, the amount of transportation runs. So you're hitting so many different sustainability metrics. It's, it's the right thing to do with the suppliers you're working with, and it reduces any operational efficiencies and reduces cost. Question now becomes is where do you start with which suppliers? We always joked about this in the class about the 80-20 rule of just starting with those strategic suppliers, strategic distributors, strategic product groups. That's an easy start. That makes it a little bit easier to get a hold of and, and grasp where the problem is and start addressing those kinds of areas of, again, whether it's returns or something else. Second thing is the supplier scorecard, working with your suppliers to identify are they following sustainable practices or not? Not just your suppliers, but also their top tier group of suppliers, right? As, as many layers as you can. It's sometimes hard. It's not easy. That's why I say it's a long-term strategy in place. The, the more you've got visibility in terms of how and where those products are coming from, the easier it is for you to respond to changes and maintain ethicality and socially responsible practices. The opposite is also true. If you have no visibility, and if you don't know what's happening ahead of time, what happens is just like all of us, suddenly we're gonna get overloaded with activity or work. What do you do is you, load, you push that on your suppliers and say, instead of 100 products, now I need 200 or 500. Now they're overstretched. Now they didn't see this coming. They need to either have their employees work twice as much, three times as much, or subcontract this with another supplier where you have zero visibility, you don't know what those suppliers practices are, and you can outsource the, the, the activity, but you cannot outsource the risk. The risk to your brand, the risk to your company, the risk to everything of dealing now and working with that supplier in that location. You can claim that you haven't, you didn't know that this was happening, but right now with the, with the speed of information flowing back and forth, that's, that's gonna come out in seconds. Uh, in terms of that information. So, so again, this is, this is not a one-time deal. It's an ongoing process of addressing and helping and working with suppliers. Sometimes it may not make sense for you to go out and invest, but the cost of those investments are actually much lower than not investing in those kinds of things. Because one of the challenges you'll get is your suppliers are going to say, we're 100% on board. We understand what you want to do. We just don't have the expertise, the bandwidth, or... The, the financial resources to do what you want us to do. And the other way to do it is as an industry to maybe form an association or some kind of a working group on those fronts because you're probably not competing on that. So why not team up and figure out the best practices, co-invest in those initiatives 
uh, and it just benefits everybody who's part of this. The apparel industry started doing this, but that was after they got hit with the 2013 Rana Plaza uh, incident. So again, it's much better to preempt those kinds of things. You will always come across events that will push those concerns in place. So it's, it's better to, to start ahead of time. I think that's very insightful to think about, you know, the tangible and the strategic steps that you could take um, and how they will positively impact both your bottom line and operations. I think that when it comes to sustainability, there's less of a case to be made. A lot of companies have jumped on the sustainability ship and, you know, whether or not you're skeptical about if this is just another box for them to check on their corporate social responsibility or not, it may very well be a genuine initiative and effort. Uh, but now I think more than ever in sort of this radical transition, not only is it commonplace for companies and brands to take a stance on social issues, but it's expected. Um, this might've been a radical move 10 years ago and companies would have steered away from it. But I think that with this approach being so recent and new, and I haven't done enough research on it, um, off the bat, I see this as sort of a tactic or a way to capture market share from an incoming uh, group of consumers, Generation Z, who we know tend to be a lot more socially conscious. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I know from your class, the answer to most of these sort of strategy questions and whether or not you should execute them is it depends. But I'm curious about what are some of the high level very high level benefits of a company choosing to take a social stance. Um, you know, how do they assess whether this is the right move for them or not? And could this be a double-edged sword? Uh, you know, because there's seems to be a lot of risks associated with it, you know, like how can it backfire um, for a company to support a human rights movement or a movement like Black Lives Matter and then not deliver on those promises or, you know, contradict their own moral code when it comes to links in their own supply chain um, or at any point in their operations, whether that's poor conditions in their factories or, you know, showing very little regard for the mental health of their employees. But essentially, how can leadership account for all of this and ensure that they're taking a genuine and authentic stance? Um, and what are the repercussions if they don't? I think the repercussions, I'll start with the last one, repercussions if they don't is th that comes to the ability to survive in the market at some point, if they do not take this seriously for all sorts of different reasons. If you're a publicly traded company, now people are looking to invest on in companies that are socially responsible, uh, that have got uh, social governance in place, that are environmentally responsible. So if you're one of those companies, that's a risk of not taking this seriously. I think it's okay for companies to acknowledge that they're not perfect, right? That they have issues, they're working. It's, it's communicating with people to say, those are the issues we have. We are working to fix those issues. This is what we've done. Those are our next steps. And I think that's part of the transparency, transparency of how are we dealing with the problems? And it's okay to have problems. There's not one perfect company that's out there. There's no example of a perfect supply chain, a perfect product, a perfect anything. And we're always going to have those challenges because things change, right? Conditions in certain countries where we're, we've got offshore production or where we're getting the resources, raw materials, that continuously changes. And we may not be up to 
be on, up to par in terms of where we want to be. And it's okay as long as we recognize this, we've got a plan to approach this and we've got a plan to address this again on an ongoing basis and, and point to examples where we've been proactively and, and serious about moving this forward. It's not just a PR stunt. It's not just a, a uh, fancy page on our website, but where we've really addressed this. And over time, one of the things we talk about is trust, right? If consumers, consumers or customers, B2B or B2C context, if they trust that you are a genuinely responsible organization, they will give you the benefit of the doubt when sometimes you fall short. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. The other part is as you start embracing certain movements, I think it's always good to reflect on how, how have you as a company been doing those kinds or similar to those initiatives, right? Whether it's Black Lives Matter, whether it's supporting any groups is how have you internally as an organization, organization supported different groups in place? Uh, if you have not, then maybe that's the time to start. And again, acknowledge that that has been a shortfall on your end and maybe you have been, not been looking at this in a serious matter. But as you move forward, it's not, again, it's not binary and it, it will not be even a choice as we move forward. Uh, we, again, we would have never thought that the top financial companies in the field are now focused on ESG related metrics and reporting. Uh, but that's the reality of things. And that's where investors now, they think they can appeal to investors is based on those kinds of practices. So, and again, as we move forward, the need for that level of accountability, transparency and visibility is gonna increase. The quicker you, you become more proactive with those kinds of things, the quicker you are and the better you are in terms of being resilient, resilient to changes, resilient to new things that happen. And that becomes part of, again, to the earlier comment is, part of your DNA as an organization. And, and it's, it's okay to fail, right? We, we always worry about that. And I'm sure all students do not think that that's okay, but it, it's okay to push and try things and to fail versus not trying it because the, the outcome of not trying this is a guaranteed failure. Definitely. So I think our last question for now, trying to tie a lot of these different concepts together, is the idea of where do we move forward with, with all of this? Um, I guess we can kind of think of it as the future of trust between businesses and businesses and even businesses and uh, consumers or government organizations, really all the different entities involved. Um, like when you look towards the future, do you envision a world where you know every company and organization is on some kind of blockchain to help with the transparency and trust uh, or other technologies, other strategies? Um, where, where do you think kind of the trends or your outlook is on this? Uh... Trust is gonna be a big deal for us moving forward of trusting that when you're getting information, that that information is accurate, that that's true, uh, we can, disagree about what this means, but at least that we both trust that this actually happened and took place. Uh, I think the more people start, and I think we'll need a lot of tools, like you mentioned, Dan, whether it's blockchain or any other emerging technology as we move forward to help us get to that level of trust with data. Uh, but after a while, that trust, after building that trust over some time, 
people will recognize that that's our, a brand I can typically trust now. They may not have to look at a dashboard on a daily basis to look at this brand. Uh, if things continue to happen where they're getting opposite information and not, and not having to trust this brand as they move forward, of course that could change. But I think after a while, after several initiatives, after some kind of a systematic and steady flow of activities that the companies have been engaged in that reflects that level of responsibility in place, I think people will trust the organization, they will trust the brand. Uh, think of this as also the, think of not just uh, socially responsible activities, but also in terms of quality, right? After a quality of a brand, after some time you trust the quality of the brand, you automatically go to purchase the brand because you know quality. You don't have to test it every single time. And even if it fails one time, you sometimes give them the benefit of the doubt until things start to deteriorate consistently. And that's where you may start shifting. But it's the same thing. It's just the ability to trust. And over time, now you give them that benefit of the doubt. Thank you so much. I know we're at time right now, so we'll let you go. Uh, I don't know if we want to like stop the recording right now, um, but I just wanted to make a few comments. I love the idea of giving tangible steps for how to develop that trust, even though trust in itself is inherent quality that's not easy to necessarily measure, but it is implicit. There are brands that we do naturally trust and they do benefit from that um, in a way that is tangible and, and measure, measurable. And I love how you talk about acknowledging where you fail um, to build trust, you know, saying that that's okay and or using other initiatives as a blueprint, if not creating that blueprint moving forward. Something that can be underlined is the um, importance of soft leadership skills, because also we're seeing leaders now being held responsible for where their company falls short or just um, poor performance in general. Um, so, and again, that would be like a whole separate episode, but I think kind of mixing these two tangible steps and processes, but also hiring empathetic leaders um, would be like a way moving forward as well. I don't know if you agree, but kind of a hybrid. I love when you said non-binary, it's such a great word for it. And I, I agree. I think it, it has to be part of the education. It has to be part of the DNA of how we think. We always think of, let's look at the balance sheets, income statements, let's look at the numbers. That's, you know, automatically goes over our head as, as you're looking at a new company or uh, examining how a company is doing. It, it has to be similar in nature. That doesn't mean that we should ignore uh, the, the financial metrics. It just, that's something in addition to the other things we're focused on that has to be part that goes into our very intuitive and quick responses to addressing those kinds of issues. Uh, again, it's, it's not a short-term solution. It's not a quick fix. If it's a quick fix, that's probably just a publicity stunt. Mm -hmm. It's a long-term play, and that's why it needs to have the uh, top leadership folks in the organization embrace this in a proactive manner, not after problems happen. Right. Well, Dan, did you want to add anything? I was just going to say, we really appreciate your time. I think this was a great start to the Ethicality podcast. And like Nadia said, uh, it looks like we already have some more questions for uh, when we come back to you for round two. Thank you for inviting me and always happy to uh, discuss this in more details.